Welcome to the Kanoi Church Podcast. We're glad that you're interested in connecting through this teaching time. If you'd like to connect further, feel free to reach out to us through our website, kanoichurch.org. For now, enjoy this teaching from Kanoi Church, where our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, good morning. Awesome to have you guys here today. We are continuing in our series called uh, The Faithful, talking about the life of Abraham. And uh, we are over halfway in the life of Abraham, which is pretty awesome. Uh, So far, what we've seen is Abraham has been called by God, left the place that he knew, the place he called home, and even the people he called family, took his wife and his nephew with him, and they went traveling to this promised land. On the way there, a famine struck the land, and he went down into Egypt. When he was in Egypt, Abraham lied about who his wife was, said that she was his sister, and Pharaoh married his wife. It didn't go well for Pharaoh. When they left Egypt, they go back to traveling, and Abraham and his nephew Lot eventually part ways. Well, it's not long after they part ways that his nephew is actually captured in a war. He is a part of the spoils of war. And Abraham goes to war with a very small number of men to rescue his nephew. And he doesn't just rescue his nephew, he rescues everyone that was captured. He regains everything that was stolen. And he actually meets a priest of the Most High God named Melchizedek. After that, we saw God and Abraham make a covenant. And it was kind of a strange ritual covenant where they had some animals that they cut in half and and then God signed the covenant by appearing as an oven that floated between those pieces and sealed the covenant. Part of the promise of God to Abraham was children, that he'd be the father of many. But children didn't come. And so we watched as Abraham and his wife kind of hatched a plan for him to take a second wife. And with this second wife, he has a son. And last week, we watched as God showed up 13 years later. Between one verse and the next verse, 13 years passes. So that newborn son goes from being a newborn to being a teenager. God shows up and kind of fulfills or or completes this covenant with Abraham and gives him the covenant of circumcision. It was last week. We're not talking about circumcision this week, in case you were wondering, Um, but one other thing that happened in that chapter was that Abraham had been called Abram, and God gave him a new name, Abraham. His wife had been called Sarai, and she had a new name now, Sarah. So finally, it's Abraham and Sarah, and this week, it's a new chapter with a new story, And, and today's chapter, one of the cool things is that Abraham is really, Abraham and Sarah both, really, are continuing to get to know God. That's really what we're gonna see in this chapter this morning. We're seeing people get to know one another. If you think about, think about a dating relationship, how do you get to know each other? You spend time with each other, right? You go places together, you try some new stuff together, you see how one another reacts to those things. You process information together. You begin to process even decisions together. You practice taking care of the other person. So you see how caring they are. You learn how much does this other person care. You begin to try to understand what love is. Does this other person love me? That's dating. You know, this is really what we're seeing in this chapter this morning. And so I want you to kind of keep that in the back of your head as we go through here is that this is, this is very exploratory. This is new territory in so many ways. Abraham is interacting with God and they're trying new things and they continue to get to know one another. And in this chapter, we're gonna see some interesting information about Abraham, about Sarah, and about God. It, it's, it's really a beautiful thing. So this morning, I want to invite you to go with me to Genesis chapter 18. So there are Bibles here in the chairs. If you don't have a Bible this morning, feel free to use one of those. If you don't have a Bible, period, we want you to take one of our Bibles. We want you to have a Bible. So please take ours as a gift to you. Or feel free to get out your, your phone app out and pull up Genesis 18. Now, last week, we said that 13 years had passed, remember? From one verse to the next, from one chapter to the next, there was 13 years that passed. 
This time, from last week's chapter to this chapter, we're thinking it's more like minutes, hours, days. It's not 13 years, all right? It's, it's a pretty close, because Sarah's not with child yet. She hasn't had a child yet, and so that's part of the way that we can date this. The other thing is that um, part of the information that we got last week from God about Sarah being the one that will bear the child in the chapter this morning, it's gonna seem like Sarah's just hearing it for the first time. So it's possible that Abraham is not a, a very good communicator with his wife. He doesn't share these things, right? But it's also possible that it happens so closely together that he just, he has not shared some of this quite yet. Um, so Genesis 18, we're gonna start at uh, verse one. The Lord appeared to Abraham in the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. We'll stop there. So I brought a tent with me today. I couldn't think of like an interesting, fun activity to make somebody come up and do with my tent. So this is really just a prop today, just to remind you that today's chapter is really taking place at a tent. It's a very, very hot day. So Abraham is sitting just outside the entrance to his tent, under the, uh, the trees, under the shade of the great trees of Mamre, when he sees these, these three figures come walking up to him, three men. And his, his first thing that he does is he kind of leaves the tent, rushes to them, and bows low to the ground. So who are these three men? Well, if we go to the very first verse here, it says the Lord appeared to him, which tells us that these three men represent God. And you might say, well, how does that work? Isn't God like a single unit of some kind? Well, yeah, you're right, but God also shows up in scripture. He meets with people in some strange forms. We just talked about how he showed up as an oven, right? In the future, when he calls Moses, he shows up as a burning bush. And in this story, in this chapter this morning, he chooses to show up as three men. Now, who are the three men specifically? Well, there's a lot of theories out there. Some people would say, well, these are just, there's three angels here. And one of these angels is the mouthpiece of God. And so if you remember back to the chapter when Hagar, Abraham's second wife, ran away to a well, an angel came and met her there and spoke on behalf of God. We would say that angel is a little special, set apart in some ways because he's the mouthpiece of God. So some people would say that it's two angels and then the kind of the special angel, the mouthpiece of God. Some people say, well, this is God and two angels. And some people say, well, this is God in three persons showing up. And you know what? I don't have an answer for you. It could be any one of those. It could be all of those. We don't know. It's interesting because as we look at this, this uh, in the text, it switches back and forth between singular and plural. So it's kind of just a fun God showing up as three here. That's all we know. God talks to himself in this chapter. It's pretty awesome. This is a neat thing. I just love, like, let's just sit with that. God shows up in three. It's cool. Um, let's keep going here in verse three. He said, uh, this is Abraham talking. If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me give you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. We'll pause there. So what we're seeing here is hospitality. That's probably not a word that's foreign to you. You know what hospitality is. But you might think this person, Abraham's being exceptionally hospitable to some strangers that show up. And part of Middle Eastern culture is that very thing. If a stranger knocks on your door, you invite them in, you feed them, you give them water, you give them what they need from you to send them on their way as well. Hospitality is a, is a part of, it's embedded in Middle Eastern culture, but it's also embedded in our Christian history. It's part of who we are as followers of Jesus and it has been for a very long time. So yes, hospitality is absolutely present here. Abraham is extending hospitality to these strangers, strangers that he recognizes as God. And that's really important to, to see here. He recognizes these strangers as God. Um, the author of Hebrews, which is a New Testament book, says this. He says, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, 
For by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels. And when we read just the book of Hebrews, we read that and we go, huh, that's interesting. If a stranger shows up, I should treat them really well because, hey, maybe they're an angel. Maybe they are. The other thing, though, is that when we read this, if a, if a Jewish person or a Hebrew person was reading that particular verse, scholars say they would go right to this story of Abraham. This is exactly what Abraham is doing. Strangers have showed up. He's showing them great hospitality. He is entertaining angels. This is something that has happened in our past. This could happen again. So if a stranger shows up, you show them great hospitality because maybe it's God. Maybe it's an angel. Verse 6. So Abram hurried, excuse me, Abraham. I can say Abraham now. I've been so used to saying Abram for so long that now I can't say Abraham. That's so frustrating. All right, so Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seals of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. We'll pause again. You know, most of us, if we have guests coming over, we plan, and we plan to have the food ready when the guests get there, or pretty much ready, right? The guests show up, and like 10 minutes later, then we eat. We have everything kind of prepped ahead of time. He doesn't have time to do that. But he's, he's gone inside, and he's told his wife to bake some bread. That takes time, doesn't it? He runs out back and he finds a choice tender calf and he takes it to a servant and says, hey, this live thing, can you make it into food for us? That takes time, doesn't it? Like, what do you think happens when all this time is being spent preparing food? This is when relationship happens. This is part of the blessing of hospitality is this is when relationship happens. This is part of Part of the Middle Eastern and Christian cultures is inviting someone into your home when you're unprepared to do so so that you can build relationship with them as you extend hospitality to them. So all this takes time, and that's something we want to point out. The other thing here is really interesting is um, you probably in your scripture, it says, get three seahs of the finest flour. And you might go, what in the world does that mean? What is that, like a special flour? Well, no, it's not. It's a unit of measurement. And it actually, it's roughly 30 pounds. 30 pounds of flour. Hey, honey, get 30 pounds of the best flour we have and make some bread quick. We're not talking about one loaf, okay? We're talking like 30, 35, 40 loaves of bread here. This is a lot of bread to make quite suddenly on the spot. Three men and Abram, Abraham, geez, Abraham do not need 30 or 40 loaves of bread to eat, do they? So what's happening here? Well, maybe Abraham is making so much bread that he can throw a banquet, a feast. He can invite the whole encampment to come over and take part in this meal as a way to honor these guests. You're not just guests, you're our honored guests and we're going to throw you a feast. That is one possibility. The other possibility is that they make enough bread so that they can break bread together and eat and then there's enough to send with their guests when they go on their journey. So you're not just caring for them in this moment, you're caring for them in all the next moments during their journey as well. And so we're not just seeing 30 pounds of flour being made into bread, we're seeing an entire calf be butchered into a meal, we're seeing curds and milk. I mean, this is like a banquet. There's so much here. These guys are not going to go hungry. Abraham has chosen his best stuff to give his guests, his best. And that's an interesting thing to note too. He's asked for the finest flour. He selected, he himself hand-selected a choice tender calf. This is the best he has. How often do we, when we entertain someone, we show hospitality to someone, do we offer the very best that we have? Not often. We often kind of keep that best stuff that's in the freezer for us later when we want that, right? We have something, it's good, don't get me wrong, we have some good stuff to share. That best stuff we could keep in the back behind some of those boxes in the freezer, right? That, that's just an interesting part of what it means to show hospitality to Abraham and in this culture. So let's keep going in uh, verse, uh, verse nine here. 
Uh, this is, this is uh, one of the three men, God, angels talking. Where is your wife Sarah, they asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old. Sarah was past the age of childbearing, so Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? <laughs> we'll pause there. Sorry for laughing. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how many people would <laughs> say it that way. Will I now have this pleasure now that I'm 90? Um, well, well, I'll get to that in a second, though, because there's something kind of even funnier yet about that. Um, <laughs> then I was like, should I actually say this at church? I don't know. I'm going to say it. Um, <laughs> But before we get there, if you needed any further proof that this is God that has showed up in three here, this is the proof. Because, um, because he knows, one, that Sarah's going to get pregnant. He knows that Sarah's going to have a child. And he knows Sarah's new name. All right? This is proof. Like, this is insider information. And it's so insider that it seems like Sarah's a little surprised by this information, right? Um, in the passage here, it says, Sarah was past the age of childbearing. In, in Hebrew, um, it literally means um, ceased in the ways of women. Okay? She has ceased in the ways of women. Which we can understand that is she's, she's been through menopause. She, she is no longer able to bear children because she is old enough that that day has come and gone. All right? So that's one thing for us to know here. Um, Sarah's also not invited to the meal. So this meal is happening out here in front of the tent under the shady trees. Sarah's inside the tent. Anybody here have been camping and sometimes you can forget that the walls of your tent don't exactly stop all the noise? You know, when you're talking, you forget that wall is just, oh, not much of a wall, right? Sarah's in the tent, and, I'm, and again, they didn't have tents like this, I'd be clear, right? They had some much bigger canvas tents. But still, the same rule applies. Sarah's inside the tent. She can hear everything that's going on. And so her words here, and this is part of what I find funny. You'll, you'll see in a second. She says, after I'm worn out, my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? She's worn out. She knows that she's past that age of childbearing. All right, we just talked about that. That's what she means there. And then she considers her husband, who's 10 years older than her. She's 90. He's 100. So she's like, oh, my Lord is worn out. <laughs> and here's what I find really humorous, right? All the kids went downstairs. She says, will I now have this pleasure? The word pleasure there is sex. She's like, really? We're going to do that? <laughs> like, he's 100, I'm 90, okay? It's, this is quite humorous, all right? She's laughing to herself as she thinks this. And that's another thing to note. It says, Sarah laughed to herself as she thought these things. Now let's keep reading in verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have this child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. So we'll pause there again. Again, just Sarah thought. She laughed out loud, but she thought these things. God responds to what she was thinking. All right? This, this, that fascinates me. And that, you know, just be aware of God's listening to your thoughts. <laughs> you know? Um, so interesting because she laughs. And some people will often point out, Sarah's laughing, and just like the chapter before, or two chapters before that, Abraham laughed at God too. God told him something, he found it so funny, he fell on the ground laughing so hard. Why does it seem like Sarah gets in trouble, but Abraham doesn't? Is this some kind of like patriarchy thing, like God, God and Abraham have something? No, here's the thing. We ask that question because we can read it that way. But if we look at this, Sarah doesn't get in trouble. She doesn't get in trouble for laughing. 
She doesn't get in trouble for finding humor in the situation, not at all. It says she was afraid. Like God responded to what she was thinking in her head. She was afraid, and so she lied and said, I didn't laugh. And, and even though she lies here, she doesn't even get in trouble for that. She's not struck down. She's not scolded. God simply, again, responds with truth. I didn't laugh. Yes, you did laugh. He just responds with truth. We have a God who is seeking truth. And that's something, I mean, if you're writing notes down, God's a truth seeker. We're going to see that show up one more time in this passage this morning, too. God is a truth seeker, okay? Let's keep reading here. Um, verse 16, and we're going to go to 22. So this is, a, this is a bigger chunk. When the men got up to leave, they looked down on Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him, for I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Then the men turned away and went on towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. We'll pause here. God is a truth seeker. God just, I have a couple things to probably share here, but I'll say this first because we just ended with God being a truth seeker. God has heard people crying out. He, he says here, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, their sin's so grievous, I'm gonna go down and see if what I've heard is true. If it's not, I'll know. God, again, is seeking the truth. All right, God is a truth seeker. Um, Here's a, here's a couple more things. At the beginning of this section, uh, starting in verse 16, God has a conversation with himself, doesn't he? he? He has this conversation where he has to make a decision. Should I let Abraham in on this information? Should I let Abraham in on what I'm about to go and do? God doesn't have to trust Abraham with this information. He doesn't have to. He could just get up with the other two and leave, be on their way. He doesn't have to say anything. He certainly doesn't have to submit himself to all of Abraham's questions. He doesn't have to do that. But God essentially says, well, I've chosen Abraham to bless the world. The world's gonna be blessed through him. I've chosen him to be a nation. And if I've trusted him with that, I can trust him with this. All right, so he chooses to let him in. Now, God hears the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. And for me, when I read that, it takes me right to Exodus. When God calls Moses in the desert, God says, I've heard the cry of my people. And one, this could be our gospel this morning, quite honestly, right here. God hears. God hears. In Egypt, it was his people who cried out, not just for a day or an hour, for 400 years, they cried out. People taught their children and their grandchildren how to cry out to God. God hears them, and God has an answer in the form of Moses for the situation that's going on. So God hears his people. Here, he doesn't say that he's hearing his people. He just says he hears the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. It could be people that do not know God, and yet God still hears them. How many times have you ever talked to somebody at work or in your family who've been like, does God hear me? Do you think God listens to my prayers? Do you think God listens to your prayers? They ask those sort of questions, don't they? And, and you might wonder, well, he listens to me. I'm sure of that. You know, I have a relationship with God. You might wonder, well, maybe, maybe someone doesn't have a relationship. Maybe God doesn't hear. No, God hears all of it. He hears a cry being raised to the heavens about something terrible that is going on inside of Gomorrah, and he's going to go check it out to see if what he hears is correct. What is the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? What is going on down there? 
Next week, we're spending, I mean, the chapter next week is all about that. But you're not allowed to look ahead. Don't sneak ahead, okay? No spoilers here, all right? I'll, but I'll give you a little taste. Um, if we want to know what, what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, we can actually jump ahead to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is a prophet that God called, and he has called Ezekiel to try and bring Jerusalem back to God. Jerusalem has been going their own direction. They've been making choices that don't line up with who God is or what God has asked them to do. And so they need to be brought back. In fact, when, when he calls Ezekiel to go to Jerusalem and talk to them, he says, Jerusalem is being like an adulterous wife, somebody who's not been true. It's like she's cheating on me, so you have to call her back to me. So he tells Ezekiel to say this, and I'll just read this to you. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters never did what you and your daughters have done. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. We can, we can look ahead. We have the ability to do that because we're way in the future. And we know that God's words are that they're arrogant, they're overfed, and they don't help the poor. That is, that is sin number one against Sodom right here. And then he goes on to say, and they've done detestable things before me. And, he, and, and here in Ezekiel, doesn't go into those sort of details. Next week, we're actually gonna set foot in Sodom and Gomorrah. And we're gonna see some examples of some of the detestable things that are going on before God. But for, t for this morning, they're arrogant, they're overfed, they're poor, and they're doing detestable things before God that do not honor God. That is what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. But I'm not going to say more than that because I don't want to spoil the, the story of what's coming next week. So let's go back here at verse 23. Then Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? We'll stop there. Um, there's a comment, commentator named Matthew Henry, and he says about this part of the passage he says, this is really the first solemn prayer that we find in Scripture. It starts out and says, Abraham drew near to God. He came near to God. He got close to God. He is, we can look at this as Abraham, he's talking with God, right? That's what prayer is. We're talking with God. He is talking to God. He's praying to God on behalf of Sodom. Now, Abraham has already had some interactions with Sodom. If you guys remember from a few weeks back when Lot was captured by an enemy king and Abraham went to rescue Lot. He did. And when he came back with all the people and all the stuff and all the money that was taken, he ran, runs into Melchizedek, the high priest, and the king of Sodom. And the king of Sodom wants to reward him for his efforts. And Abraham does not trust the king of Sodom. He has some sort of information already with this king, with this city, with what's been going on there, that he knows this person's not trustworthy. If I take this reward from him, he's going to use it against me in the future. So I refuse to take anything from the king of Sodom. Okay? Abraham's already had this interaction with him, with the king. It's not a good one. It's not a positive one. He doesn't have a positive mental picture of, of Sodom or the king there, what's going on there. And yet here, what do we see? Abraham is interceding on behalf of Sodom to God. He's pulling God aside. He doesn't have the positive interaction with them, but he's still praying for them. You hear me? He doesn't have a positive interaction with the king or the place or the people, and he's still praying for them. The best way I can describe this is as intercessory prayer, okay? And so that might be a new term for you. Maybe you never heard that. And, and so intercessory prayer, you know, the, the sermon today is called The Intercessor. 
Um, it's praying on behalf of someone else, okay? That's what he's doing here. And so he's, he's asking this question, uh, God, we really sweep away the good and the bad together. God, will you, would you really just take an entire city of people if there are good people in it and sweep it away? Is that really something you do? Is that what the judge of the whole earth would do? Is that right? Because that doesn't seem right to me, God. Well, our interaction so far, that's not the picture that I get of who you are. God, would you really do this? That's what's being asked here. And how does God respond? Verse 26, the Lord said this, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. I told you this, this, this morning that this, is, um, this chapter is a lot like a, a dating relationship. They're getting to know each other. Right here, we know some stuff about God. Right here. God hears and responds to the cries of his people and all people. That tells us that God is compassionate. Does it not? Isn't that what it means when you hear somebody crying out? If you hear them and you do something, you respond to them, then you are compassionate. God is compassionate. God is going to go down physically. He's going down to Sodom to check and see if what he's heard is right. He's doing his due diligence. This means that God is concerned with justice. God is just. So he's compassionate, he's just. And now Abraham has come to him, interceding on behalf of the people in this city and saying, God, would you really seep away the wicked and, and the, the righteous together? And he says, I will spare them if there's 50 people. And so we learn that God is also gracious. Okay? God is also gracious. Right here, just in this story alone, he's compassionate, he is just, and he is gracious. Okay? So in this relationship, as you, or you're, you're dating somebody or you're getting to know a new friend and you're learning about them and you're spending time with them, you're learning things. And you're kind of in your head, you're keeping a list. Oh, he does this. Oh, she does this. This is Abraham. He's still getting to know this God. Abraham doesn't have this. No scriptures for Abraham. Abraham lives pre-anything being written down. All his knowledge of God comes from his interaction with God. So he's making his list. God is compassionate. God is concerned with justice. God is gracious. In verse 27, then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I'm nothing but dust and ashes. It's, it's funny. It's like Abraham finally remembers his place, doesn't it? He's like, whoa, I kind of got ahead of myself there a little bit. I started questioning God a, a little bit, right? Who is he to question the intentions of the Lord? And I think he starts to feel that. I think I think he also is realizing that might be how he's coming across. But I don't think that is what is guiding Abraham's questions here. I don't think he's trying to be disrespectful. I don't think that, um, that he is, yeah, he's being disrespectful. He's getting to know God. He wants to know who is this God. Let's read on. Another big chunk here. We're going to go verse 28 to the end. He says this, <clears throat> What if the number of the righteous is five less than 50. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five people? If I find 45 there, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him, what if only 40 are found there? He said, well, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, well, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, well, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. Abraham is not being disrespectful, but I think we can see in this passage that he's afraid that he comes across that way. It reads, it reads actually kind of humorous. Oh, don't, don't get mad at me, but what if there's only this many people? Don't, let me ask again, what if there's only this many people? He's, he's getting to know who God is. This conversation is probably, now I think about it, it's probably a lot less like a dating relationship and it's more like a, um, a child talking to their parents. 
Um, maybe you, you've had these conversations before. Maybe you can just picture them in your head, but it's the time when the, the child says, Mommy, how much do you love me? Mommy, will you love me if I don't eat all my vegetables? Mommy, will you love me if um, I get in trouble at school? Mommy, will you love me if I forget your birthday? Mom, will you love me if someday I wreck your car? Mom, will you love me if I get in trouble with the police and I go to jail? Like, these are questions that children ask, and I'm saying that from experience. I remember asking some of those questions. Mommy, how much do you love me? It's really like Abraham is doing this. He's saying, God, how much do you love us? God, how much do you love this world? Do you love it so much that if there's only 20 or 10, that you would spare the city? God, how much do you love us? He's not being disrespectful. It's a child getting to know the father. We're gonna go into our, uh, our grow area here this morning. Um, our grow area this morning is gonna be hospitality. It's hard for me to read this chapter and then bring it as a sermon to our community and not talk about hospitality. Uh, hospitality is something that we probably don't talk about enough. It's something that is supposed to be you know, a spiritual discipline for us. It's something that is to be ingrained into our Christian walk. Because we love Jesus, this is how we treat other people. So what I wanna do this morning is I wanna just read you a couple verses from scripture to give you an idea, not just Nick is taking an idea from a passage in Genesis about Abraham and we're expounding it to talk about hospitality. Let me let scripture do the speaking on my behalf, okay? So let me first do a couple from the Old Testament. We'll start with Isaiah 58. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. It's Isaiah 58. Leviticus 19. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now we'll go to the New Testament. We'll talk about Titus. This is Titus, is, or Paul is talking to Titus about what is it to be an elder in the church, all right? And an elder would be a leader in the church. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Romans 12, this is the Apostle Paul again talking. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. First Peter, and this is the Apostle Peter talking. Above all, love each other deeply. Because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Matthew 25. This is Jesus. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothes you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Hospitality is something that is not just found in one part of Abraham's life. It's something that is found throughout scripture. It's part of the overarching theme of scripture. It's part of what is supposed to make us as followers of Jesus who we are. So what is hospitality? That is what I am often asked. Okay, so to be generous, is to be known by what you give away. To be hospitable is to be known by what you do with what you keep, okay? What you do with what you keep. With what you've been blessed with, what will you do with that? That is what it means to be hospitable. I'm gonna give you an example here. In the book of Acts, I think it's chapter 16, Paul and Silas are evangelizing in this city. 
And they're walking through the city and they're talking about Jesus and the way of love and the way of Jesus. And there's this woman that's following them around the city. And this woman happens to be a slave and a fortune teller. And she has apparently a spirit within her that's giving her this incredible ability to tell fortunes. And it's so good that the people that own her are making a ton of money off of her telling all these fortunes. She's following Paul and Silas through the city, being a, being a bit annoying, quite honestly. And she's saying like, hey, these guys, these guys are telling you the way to follow Jesus. And, and Paul turns around and he casts the, the demon, he casts the spirit out of the woman. So the spirit that was giving her this ability to tell fortune suddenly has been removed. And that does not make her owners happy. They see this as a loss of income. And so a crowd begins to gather and they attack Paul and Silas. They beat them, they rip their clothes, they hurt them, they injure them. Paul and Silas are eventually thrown into prison and their feet are put in the stocks, which, which might sound a little weird to you. You probably think of stocks as something from medieval times where you kind of put your head and your arms through and you're, you're stuck in there, right? And your feet being put in there, why your feet? Honestly, if their feet are put in there, it's probably because in jail, they're being beaten on the bottom of their feet which you might be able to imagine is sensitive. Think back to the last time you walked across a stony driveway or you just walked across a regular driveway and found that one stone with your foot and you didn't like that, did you? No, so they're in prison and they're, not, they're already hurt from this encounter with the crowd and they're being hurt worse while they're in prison yet. So how are they gonna act when they're there? Well, they sing. They sing songs of praise, they sing hymns. They begin to pray out loud. It's so weird, it's so strange. And while they're there singing and praying, an earthquake hits the jail. An earthquake that knocks the doors off the prison cells and the chains off of the prisoners. As the dust begins to clear and the jailer who's been assigned to watch these two looks around and sees the doors gone and the chains laying on the ground, he thinks everybody's gone. I am so gonna be in trouble. And so rather than be in trouble, he says, I'm, I'm gonna kill myself because what they'll do to me is gonna be so much worse. So as he prepares to kill himself, Paul and Silas cry out, we're still here. And all of the commotion, they didn't run away. They didn't escape. Because of the way that they lived and acted through the prison time, because of the fact that they didn't walk away when they could have the jailer and his whole household come to know Jesus. Now, what you might say, too, is now that the jailer knows Jesus, maybe he can let them go. Or maybe now that he knows Jesus, Paul and Silas will be like, hey, we're all part of the family now. Can you just uh, help us get out the back door? That, that's not the conversation they have. What the jailer does, though, is show radical hospitality. Because what he does is he cleans their wounds. and He binds them. He, for a moment, sheds the role of jailer and he dons the role of healer. That's what he can do. He can't let them go. He'll be breaking the law. How would it look if he comes to know God and comes to know Jesus and the very first thing he does is just break the law? That wouldn't look good. How would it look for Paul and Silas to be the one that lead him to Jesus for the first thing that they do when he comes to know Jesus be to ask him to break the law? No what he can do with what he's been given, what this jailer can do with what he's been blessed with is clean their wounds, is to bandage them and care for them. And that's what he does. Hospitality is taking what you've been given and using it to bless other people. Abraham encounters these three men, these strangers, these, these angels, that he encounters God and he offers them food and shelter. He washes their feet. He offers them time and conversation and relationship. As they eat, he eats with them. As they eat, he stands with them. When they get up to walk away, he walks with them. Be like you walking your guests to the front door. He walks with them as they go. Hospitality isn't just a nice idea. It's not just a nice idea. It's something that is supposed to be a spiritual discipline like, like reading scripture and praying. It's something that draws you closer to God. It's something that helps you know God better. It's helping to make you look more like Jesus himself. You become more of a reflection of Jesus when you are hospitable to the people around you. And you might say, well, how? I'm not a good cook. And I, I have a terribly small house. And I'm not much of an entertainer. And you don't have to have any of those things 
be hospitable. Often those are the things that we use as an excuse not to be hospitable. Hospitality starts with an invitation. That's it. You go back to the beginning of this chapter with Abraham, it starts by him saying, if you would stay, I would have you. It starts with an invitation. It starts with inviting somebody into your home, to your dinner table, with you when you go somewhere, inviting them into your life to see life with you. It starts with invitation. So this week, who's God crossing your path with? Because I, I believe that he does that stuff intentionally. I believe that you cross paths with people that God wants you to cross paths with. Who is he asking you, having you cross paths with? And how can you take what you've been blessed with in order to bless them? We're not asking you to give away more. We're asking you to take what you've kept and use it for God as a blessing. All right, we're gonna wrap up with our gospel section here. Gospel is gonna look a little different today. It's, it actually, it's gonna be a little bit shorter than normal. Um, and I'm gonna let Jesus do most of the speaking here. Um, I want to talk about intercessory prayer for our gospel time. This could have very well been our growth area, though. I'll just say that up front, too, because maybe for you, you're like, actually, I'm, I'm a pretty hospitable person. I, I do a pretty good job of taking what God has blessed me with and just being really free with it to utilize it for other people. That's awesome. That is so awesome. So maybe the growth area for you is prayer. And maybe it's being willing to pray not for yourself, and for what's going on in your life and for the things that you would like or you would want to see or for your healing. Maybe it's praying on behalf of other people and what's going on in their life and the healing that they need and, and maybe the people that you maybe don't even like. Maybe that's the growth area for you. So this could have been our growth area, but what I want to draw your attention to is Abraham is doing intercessory prayer here, but Jesus is the intercessor, in my opinion. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he is taken and arrested and then crucified, he, he gets down on his knees and he prays to God the Father on behalf of his disciples. And so I wanna use his words. He says this to them in John 17. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. And I think this here is our special, special thing this morning. Maybe you don't know this, but Jesus prayed for you. Jesus was an intercessor between you and God. He prayed on your behalf. He prays for everyone that will come to know Jesus, that will come to know God through the message of his disciples, through people like John, who we're reading right now. Through people like Peter, who we just read a little bit ago, those disciples are responsible for writing this down. Many of us know God because it was written down, because someone shared it with us, because it was written down, they got to know God, and then they told you about God. Jesus prays for us because we are the people who get to know him through his followers. So the next words of Jesus that I'm going to read are a prayer for you, for us. And his prayer is pretty simple. And we could sum it up in one word. And it's a word that we use here a lot. And I'm proud of that. And I'm thankful for that. So maybe if you listen closely, you can catch the word I'm talking about. He says this, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me 
that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Did you catch it? Did you catch that one word? Jesus, when thinking about the future followers of God, prays for unity. He prays for unity. Abraham is getting to know God. And he's like asking all these questions, testing the water to say, God, how much do you love us? How much do you love us? How much do you love us? Father, would you love me if we ask questions that are very much the same thing? Why why does bad stuff happen to good people? Does God really listen to my prayers? Does God care about me? All of these questions are really, God, how much do you love us? God, do you love us? The world wants to know how God feels about it. I believe that wholeheartedly, that so many of the things that are spoken up, that are shouted from the rooftops, have everything to do with the world wanting to know, does God love us? To care. And the answer here is, is yes, but it also puts an onus on us. It puts a, it puts a um, it sh- we shoulder something in this. It tells us to do something. It says, when we are unified, it shows the world that God loves the world. When we're unified, it shows the world that God loves the world. He says it this way, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me when we're unified. So friends, this is the gospel. This is good news. And it's also a challenge for us this week. It's a challenge for us today when we go out those doors and we go downstairs. May we be unified in Jesus and the love that he has for us, and the love we have for one another. Hi, this is Pastor Nick. Thanks for listening. I hope something that you heard today was very helpful. If you want to connect with us further, feel free to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or our website, kanoichurch.org. Sure, I'm glad we're in this together. Thank you.